Well, good morning, church. It's uh, good to be back with you, albeit virtually. Um, I'd say now that we've closed the time difference to seven hours, I'm going to ask you to work with Sam to do uh, a live version of it next time rather than uh, re-recording. Uh, this Sunday, we continue with our studies in the book of Amos, and this week we're going to be looking specifically at chapter 7. And the title that I've given this message is Seeing It As It Is. And in that, I would like us to look at two themes. We're going to look at who pulls the strings in the chapter, and we're going to look at who speaks the truth in the chapter. But before we read the text to investigate our theme, I thought it'd be useful if we just took a couple of moments to catch up on the story so far, so that when we read the chapter, we read it through the correct perspective. As we have learned in Previous weeks, Amos was most likely an owner of land and flocks. It describes him as being um, a shepherd at times, um, as, as keeping sheep, as um, farming uh, fig trees and, and sycamores, um, an executive farmer, if you like. And he ministered at some time between the reigns of Uzziah in Judah and King Jeroboam II in Israel, around 760 years before Jesus was born. Remember that the kingdom of Israel at this time has been divided into two parts, two smaller kingdoms. There's the, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And whilst other parts of scripture tell us that both of these kingdoms under the reigns of these kings were relatively successful, it is important to understand that there was two big problems that began to emerge under their kingship. One was the rise of Assyria as a regional power, and secondly, an emergence of social economic problems. To be honest, a time that doesn't sound that dissimilar to our own. And during this time, Amos had it laid upon his heart that he would prophesy revealing the, the severity of God's judgment against his people, while also declaring the hope of restoration after the coming destruction and exile at the hands of the Assyrian kingdom. And the book of Amos is structured such that we have an introduction in chapter 1 and then a series of oracles that we've been doing over the last few weeks in chapters 1 through to 6. And then... We get to this point in chapter 7, which through to chapter 9, we have a series of five visions, three of which are captured in our text today and two of which will follow in the coming weeks before our study comes to a conclusion at the end of Amos um, with a closing oracle of salvation of Israel. So when we read this chapter just now, it would be helpful if you could try and pick up on the three visions um, that we see described in here as that will form the basis for our study this morning. So we're going to be reading from, from verse 1 um, of chapter 7 of Amos, and we're going to, to read uh, the entire chapter through. I really should have bookmarked um, where, I had my, uh, where I had my finger. Apologies. It's probably more painful watching me... <laughs> looking to it than it is uh, doing what I'm doing just now. We're getting there, chapter, chapter 7. 
Okay, Amos chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and it was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Verse 7, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Moses, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said, Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman, not a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Let's pray briefly. Heavenly Fathers, we come to consider this, this passage um, from your word, Lord. We just pray that you would give us discernment and wisdom to, to understand what you would say to us this morning. Father, that we'd be sensitive to to hear your your spirit and um, speaking to us and lord that we would really be able to to dig deep uh, into this ancient book and uh, come to understand more about you and your son um, and how we can better imitate him in your precious son's name amen as I mentioned, um, Amos is principally spoken in oracles of judgment, wherein 
In this chapter, in chapter 7, his focus is visions of judgment and their implications for opening eyes to the truth. The activity of God is revealed both in everyday events and in cosmic phenomena, with an emphasis on God's absolute sovereignty. But before we look at the actual visions, I think it would be helpful to firstly understand the relationship between the word and the nature of Amos's vision. Right at the beginning of Amos, in verse 1, it said, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tokyo, when he, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That's what we saw in Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. Amos is not recounting here a series of dreams or ecstatic experiences. Amos understood clearly what he saw, and he presents those revelations here in vivid language. At the outset, it's important to realise what vision is. Vision is not seeing what is not there. Rather, vision is seeing everything that is there. Moreover, vision is given by God and not invented or dreamt up by humans. We know this because we can see it right down the backbone of our text. If you're to look at verse 1, um, of, of Amos in verse 4 and verse 7, they all begin in the same way. This is what the Lord showed me. This divine revelation contained both images and words, and the words are essential to convey the actual message. And there is a short but important lesson for us. God has spoken through his word. His word is complete. His word is true, his word is authoritative, his word is infallible, and his words reveal the very nature of God to the reader. It is fit to encourage, it is fit to challenge, it is fit to rebuke, it is fit to comfort, it is fit to bring hope, it is fit to show love, and it is fit to bring good news to the masses. It needs no addition, it needs no redaction, it needs no editing. Do not listen, friends, to anyone who dreams something up for your life contrary to what you know to be true in Scripture. Rest and trust solely in his word. The three visions described in our text um, answer this, this first theme that I mentioned earlier. Who pulls the strength? And for this part of uh, uh, this morning, we're going to be focusing our attention on verses 1 through 9. And the first vision that we see is the vision of the locusts in verse 1 through to 3. Let me just read it to you again. This is what um, the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when, he, when the latter growth was just about to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. So it's, so it's about springtime. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh Lord, God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning me. It shall not be, said the Lord. In this first vision, Amos is, is showing God in the process of forming a locust swarm just at the time when the crops are about to grow. grow. God is, is using the natural order of things to bring about a devastating plague that was to, 
to strip the land bare of all grass, crop and seeds right at the point where they're about to plant for their harvest. And while there's no mention of Israel's sin in this passage, and when I say Israel, I'm referring to Israel and Judah, it does appear that Israel is suffering a similar fate to that of the Egyptians back in Exodus when, when Pharaoh was refusing to let the Jews go. Amos's plea, O Lord, please forgive, further demonstrates that God was exercising judgment, that the people had indeed sinned and that they needed to repent. And Amos stands there as the intercessor. And in verse 3, it records the Lord as having relented to that intercessor. But it's important to note that for God to relent, it doesn't imply any consistency on his part but simply rather a willingness to express his mercy and be faithful to his covenant. God, we know, is a merciful God. This is a theme that we see run right through scripture. If you're to, to think back to the destruction of Sodom, God said before it that he was willing to spare the city if only a few sinners repented. And likewise, he restrained the angel of destruction from, from sending um, a plague on, on Jerusalem in 2 Samuel, despite it being just to do so. There are two lessons for us here. Firstly, God is merciful to us to forgive our sins. And secondly, he will withhold destruction from us because of what Jesus has died on, on the cross for. It is fit to cover our sin completely. However, there will come a time when those who do not repent will have to face up to the consequences of his judgment. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to share the love and to share the good news of Jesus so that people will hear and not face despair. God is mighty to save, but he is just to condemn. He is the one who pulls the string. Verses 4 through to 6 then tell us our second vision. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord. Again, we, we see from this that God is in total control of all things. Those things that are physical and created and those things that are supernatural. What the, what the great deep refers to in um, verse, verse 4 um, is not entirely clear. Commentators disagree on what it means. It could re refer something to subterranean waters which nurture growth and would have replenished the crops devastated by the locusts and by the fire or maybe the deep is uh, some kind of uh, spiritual home for the forces of evil. Either way God's just judgment is in total control of all of it and fit to devour it. And this time, Amos doesn't even bother asking the Lord for forgiveness. You'll notice the change in his line. Instead of saying, oh, Lord, please forgive, he says, oh, Lord, 
please peace. He is casting himself on the mercy of God. He is simply asking that God would have compassion. And again, we read that after that uh, plea for compassion, that God relent. His grace and his mercy again on powerful display. If you've ever had an encouragement to pray, is this not a great encouragement right here? That a single man such as Amos can petition Yahweh, can ask for God's compassion, and he is there ready to forgive, ready to apply his grace to our situation. This is what he has given us through Jesus. A better intercessor than Amos. One who sacrificed his perfect, faultless self. So that God's judgment would permanently relent. Permanently relent. For those who ask for his forgiveness. And when I think about this, I can't help but thinking about that old hymn. Where it says, it is well with my soul. It goes like this. My sin, oh the bliss. Of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. God is mighty to save, and He is just to condemn. He is the one who pulls the string. The third vision is the one of the plumb line that we see in verses 7 through to 9. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. A plumb line, just to explain, is, is what a builder would use to ensure that uh, a built wall is running true and straight. It would help to show up any defect in the wall or any lack of, of soundness with that wall. And in this vision, it's a, a metaphor for a spiritual plumb line. God is measuring the obedience of the people of Israel against his plumb line. They're being measured against the covenant standards that he has set down in the law. And when he measures that obedience compared with his covenant standards, he can see from the plumb line that they have fallen well short. Indeed, there's a very solemn declaration in the last sentence of verse 8. Behold, I am setting my plumb line in the midst of my people. I will never again pass by them. I will never again pass by them. When he is saying pass by them, he is saying that he will not do like what he did in Egypt, where the angel of death passed over the houses of the Jews who had the blood of the lamb on their lintel and went in turn to destroy their enemies. No, this time, because of their disobedience, he will not pass by them. He will make them desolate. God will deal with two of Israel's central institutions. 
the religious shrines or the high places and the royal household, for example, that of Jeroboam. The religious leaders and royalty were put in place to, to model God's covenant grace amongst God's people. Instead, they have become prideful and self-indulgent and complacent. All those negative characteristics that we read about in Amos 1 through to 7. And this time, Amos does not even try to intercede. He does not even ask for God to cease. The time has come from judgment and the point of no return is been. And that was us prior to Jesus. We had fallen short of his, his standard and had been corrupted from birth. We couldn't attain on our own merit our eternal freedom. We needed someone pulling the strings. We needed someone who wanted to be gracious and merciful to the extent where they would send their own son to die in our The second half of chapter 7 from verses 10 onwards falls under the second theme that I spoke about, the theme of who speaks the truth. We have our, our two central characters uh, in this section competing in a sense. We have Amos and we have Amaziah, the, the high priest of Bethel. And we can see from this section that the dialogue between Amos and Amaziah really tells a story. A conversation occurs after the three visions of judgment and it illustrates the consequences of Amos's ministry. The third version or vision, sorry, that we heard with the plumb line is followed by this blunt prediction in verse 9 that Israel would be made desolate. And that must have stung Amaziah into action. Immediately we see Amaziah being hostile. And it is clear that in no sense is Amos's denunciation of Israel's bogus worship and social injustice overdone. Amaziah is the very evidence that it is not. The high priest of Bethel is exposed as a self-seeking, unscrupulous politician who will not listen to the word of God. The plumb line that has already been applied to the religious and royal institutions, we read of in this, this closing section, is applied to this individual. And he suffers the same result. But if we're to, to break down this section into three mini-sections, we see three things. We see Amaziah's protest. We see Amos's call. And then we see judgment exerted on Amaziah. In Amaziah's protest, that's the first mini-section, he attempts to, to represent Amos's visions and his ministry as a personal attack on Jeroboam. It says, then in Amaziah, the, the high priest of Bethel, um, said to Jeroboam, king of Israel, Amos has, has conspired um, against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not, not fit to bear all his works. However, we know that Amos was not guilty of any personal attack on the king, nor had he predicted Jeroboam's violent death. The tactics employed by Amaziah here are so true of our present day. He chooses to, to personalize 
a general word to discredit Amos. And like all such accusations, it's a mixture of truth and error. It is true that Amos had predicted the downfall of Jeroboam's house and indeed the exile of the kingdom. What is not true is that this was a personal vendetta on the part of Amos against Jeroboam. Amos is simply the messenger who brings the word. The word did not originate with him. The Amaziahs of this world will consistently refuse to acknowledge that. They will always attack the messenger rather than the divine source of the message. And I'm sure that you can think of plenty of examples of that where the preacher or the evangelist or the Christian apologist is attacked for their personhood rather than for their message. But it's important that we focus purely on the message. Because even the best of our Christian brothers and sisters are fallen people just like us. And vulnerable to attack. And vulnerable to becoming discredited. Let us always ensure that when we share Jesus with someone, we share Jesus only. Not our favourite pastor plus Jesus, not our favourite Christian friend, plus Jesus, not our favourite Christian celebrity, plus Jesus. Just Jesus. Just the message. This is what Amos did. He simply said, this is what the Lord showed me. In Amaziah's protest, we also see a Evidence of a sneering tone and an encouragement for Amos to return to Judah. Oh, seer, it says, go away, get back to Judah, go eat bread there and prophesy there. Judah was Amos's home part of the divided kingdom. And if he was to, to return there and criticize Israel there, then it would be well received by the population. There are two lessons for us here as believers in Christ. The first lesson is that we should stand firm in what we believe. We shouldn't tone down the message just because someone is sneering at us or seeks to call us out for being radicals or fundamentalists. God has called us to a difficult task. And the truth that's contained within the word is a divisive truth. But the truth must be maintained. God, through his Holy Spirit, will convict and challenge. It's not our duty to, to tone down or soften the gospel for the hearer. And our second challenge in this is not to play along to the drumbeat of the crowd. It would have been easy for Amos to return to Judah and to go up there and to denounce and mock Israel. The people of Judah would have loved for nothing more to hear the doomsday prophecies about Israel. It would have been a popular message to preach, but that doesn't make it the right message. It's important for us to examine the log, firstly, Scripture tells us, in our own eye, before dealing with the step in someone else. We need to be challenged and held to account just as much as our brother or sister when we are who we think we are. In situations where they're maybe doing things a little bit worse than ourselves. Again, the word must be central to it all. God's word. 
and not just a person's popular opinion. It is the word that speaks the truth. Our second mini observation is Amos's call in verses 14 through 15. And here again we see that God is the one who speaks the truth. Then Amos answered um, and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. These two verses detail the call of Amos. In many of the prophetic books, there's, there's a similar call narrative. We have Isaiah's call narrative in chapter 6 of Isaiah. We have Ezekiel in chapter 1, Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, and obviously Moses in Exodus. These, these statements or narratives serve to give credibility to the prophetic word and to speak of a direct encounter with God. And in this call, we see that Amos is responding to Amaziah saying, it doesn't matter what you do with me, because it's not about me. I wasn't a professional prophet. I'm not even a particularly learned or religious man. But God took me and he's using me to deliver his message. His emphasis is firmly on the authority of the word of God, not on the personality of himself. It's the messenger, not the message. The sermon, not the preacher. Even today, as we consider this word from Amos, it's not about me here, Derek, the speaker, or my opinion on these matters. We are here before the very word of God. And it's solely on that that our focus should be. It is he who speaks the truth. Thirdly and finally, the last section of the, the chapter details God's judgment on Amaziah. When we look again at um, in verses 16 to, to 17, we can see very strong language being used. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your lands will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile, away from its land. Amos makes a point twice in this section. It is this. This is the word of the Lord. And that is an important point, because we can see from verse 16 that Amaziah has stood against that. He has said not to prophesy, call out or preach against the institutions of the day. And that's a serious sin to prevent the word of God being spoken. And those who do that, they will be silent. The fate of Amaziah is terrible. It involves not only him, but extends to his, to his wife and to his sons and to his daughters. Everything he trusts in will go. He will no longer be able to carry out his priestly role. The nation itself will be rejected and be exiled. None of this was inevitable. But Amaziah had made a choice. He had chosen to reject the word. And the word that he had rejected has become his judge. 
This is what happens when we share the good news. Some will be attracted by the fragrance of Christ and will be saved. And there are others that will smell the stench of death and reject the world. Brothers and sisters, there's a call to be cautious here. Unlike Amaziah, we must put our trust in God. Not in the things of this earth or in its institutions. Because before the word of God, they are holy in And secondly, we must be mindful that God is the one who speaks the truth. And therefore, we should put all our human effort into sharing that truth. Yes, some will reject the word, but some will be captured by the fragrance of the word. And in that, there is great joy. Luke 15 and 7 tells you, I tell you that in the, knee, the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. Words and vision are intrinsically linked to that. The visions show us that God is in full control and that he is mighty to His word shows us that it is he who speaks the truth and that it is through trusting and believing in him that we can rejoice and be like Amos rather than suffer the consequences like Adam. Please be encouraged by that this morning. That is our and my prayer for you today. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for just an opportunity to, to gather together in, in person and, and virtually and to consider these words. And Father, just to, to read there of you consistently pulling the strings and consistently applying your grace and your mercy, even in times when we fall so short. And Father, we know that is true of our own lives because we now have access to you through the giving of your son, Jesus, on our behalf on the cross. Taking the guilt and the pain and the hurt and the shame and all our filthy sinfulness in earth. And Lord, we just pray that we would be confident in that faith, confident to share your word unequivocally and to share it as it is and to allow the spirit to do its work. Father, may we be keen to preach Christ crucified and to share this gospel with our brothers and sisters and with our friends and our family and our co-workers in the days that fly ahead. Be our inspiration, be our encouragement, Lord, and please help us become more like in your precious son's name. Amen. God bless you um, and see you soon. Take care.